and welcome to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Uh, I'm slightly stepping out of uh, my lane again here, and we're going to do an actual interview with a real expert today um, on trade, which is a fascinating part of our of our of our economy. It's the realization of all of the things that we do, uh, try to sell things or trying to import the things we need to make what we sell. And of all the men in Cyril Ramaphosa's cabinet, um, trade industry and competition minister Ebrahim Patel is arguably the most secure. Ramaphosa absolutely loves this guy. He has a very precise style and he works very hard. He entertains no doubts about the certainty of his path and the fidelity of his mission. He's convinced Ramaphosa that he understands business and that he he shares the president's worldview of a new dawn uh, of a new world order as power supposedly slips from the U.S. and its Western allies. In return, Ramaphosa allows him to stride across what remains of South African manufacturing and industry like a colossus, although he's just a fairly small man, uh, indulging his craving for forensic detail and the conviction that he can, bolt by bolt, not only understand and describe every intricacy of every market he turns his head to, uh, and should should he deem it necessary, transform it or fix it. He is, in short, exhausting, and despite having fingers in every pie, he can reach through his ministerial... Ah, shame. Sorry. He is, in short, exhausting, and despite having fingers in every pie, he can reach through his ministerial competencies. He's begun to make the odd mistake or misstep, call them what you will. Where once he erected trade barriers to protect and grow local industries through punishing new duties, now they are dismantled or being dismantled because they created shortages in the local market that pushed up prices just like everyone said they would. Poultry duties have been pushed. Localization rules, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't. Companies once punished for collaborating in their sectors are now actively encouraged to collude in priority sectors like infrastructure or the provision of electricity. It's all of a bit of a sludge, but the minister's impulse to fiddle with the order of things is undiminished. He's just triggered investigation by the Competition Commission, which falls under him, into retail food pricing, some of which it claims are unjustified, despite, you know, food prices soaring around the world, uh, the war, droughts, crippling shipping costs, There'll be fines and humiliations and press conferences, and in a few years, the same food re- retailers will be given urgent permission to collude on food pricing or, or marketing or whatever with things that are simply no longer available in the market because the minister broke it. But tell us nemesis or, or his bet noir is the trade advisor Donald Mackay, whose consultancy XA Global Trade Advisors tracks Patel's path through our industry, a destructive path quite often, often meeting him in court on behalf of stressed clients. Last year, Mackay began compiling a regular report on how long it takes the DTRC and its ITAC affiliate to finalize import duty investigations. Mackay and his team conducted research into delays experienced with customs decisions at ITAC and the Ministries of Finance and Trade Competition and Industry and found that the average days taken for tariff investigations had increased to 320 days since 2015, compared to 191 days between 2009 and 2014. 
an update on that report has just come out, and the problem seems to be getting worse, not better, with some three billion being lost to delays on import duty investigations. Donald Mackay, thanks so much for joining me here. What's going on? Why is the minister allowing these delays? Does he in fact concede that there are delays? Sure. Hi, Peter. So the the, the delays are simply a fact, and I think the first thing we've got to get to grips with is these investigations are taking longer and longer, and that has a consequence. Now, there's an argument to be made, and it's not entirely irrational, that um, if if government can extract some kind of reciprocal agreement out of a company before granting them whatever concession they're looking for, whether it be a duty increase or duty reduction, that we could in some way amplify the impact of that decision. The problem is that there's also a cost to every decision taking longer. And so there's a point at which the cost of the delays will will rapidly exceed anything that um, that the DTIC might be able to extract in the form of, of some kind of reciprocal agreement. And so at the moment, according to the measure provided by ITAC, where investigations are meant to wrap up within six months, um, the cost of the indecision, in other words, the, the cost either in duties paid when they shouldn't or duties which could have been collected when, when someone asked for protection, um, if you put those numbers together, we come to an amount of 3 billion rand. And roughly uh, half of that, but less than half, is because of products that, that cannot be obtained locally. So duty requests um, where someone says, please remove this duty because I can't secure the product locally. So if we say those are the easier part of the decisions to make, then we'd say we're we're still dealing with uh, or somewhere around um, 1.2. 4 billion, 1.2 billion, my apologies, for the amount of duty paid in the period that the decision was overdue. Now, the question then would be... Can I interrupt you just for yeah. something? Sorry, are you you talking about, are you saying to me that we impose import duties on products that we don't make in South Africa? No, so I think that that's probably not accurate. Um, uh, instead, what happens is something more akin to, there was a moment in the past when we made something... And let's say that factory is closed down or they can't meet demand or insert whatever other circumstance. So there there is 7,500 tariff codes in our tariff book, which means even with the best effort, um, ITAC and the minister can never perfectly calibrate the tariff book to match the market circumstances. So what they do is they rely on a particular industry to say, I can't buy this locally, give me a hand and help me to please remove this extra cost burden. Now, those companies, in in the same way as someone asking for a duty increase, even if you cannot secure the product locally, you are still required to um, meet the conditions of this agreement. So that agreement might say to you, I need you to invest an additional amount in in plant and equipment. It might say, I I need you to employ more people, Um, whatever other condition the minister wishes to impose. Now, even if we said that those conditions would would yield an economic good, and so that it'd be better to do that than not to do it. The problem is how long it is taking means that is th- as things currently stand, 
we we have 1.4 billion rand that's being paid in duties for the period that these investigations were overdue. But that's that's clearly problematic. Um, so in order for the delay to be justified, the the benefit, the economic benefit, would have to exceed that. And even in the best of circumstances, it's going to take years for that economic benefit to even break even. Um, and who knows, three years from now, when let's say that decision um, has broken even, at that point, you're only really in the money with the decision. So, you know, rather than criticizing the policy itself, which, you know, I think I've been quite clear that I don't agree with, but I accept it is government's policy, the very tardy implementation of the policy is adding a cost that I think is eradicating any benefit that the policy itself might generate. And Donald, in your experience, is the, are the delays becoming worse? Are they longer than they would have been 10, 15 years ago? Yes. Yes, they definitely are. So, so yeah. if we go back to 2009, which was kind of the time of the last financial crisis, and therefore a period that's fairly comparable to, to kind of what we're in at the moment. Um, ITAC was taking an average of seven months to complete an investigation. So this is not only ITAC, in fact. It's ITAC, um, Minister Rob Davies, and I'm not sure who the Minister of Finance was in 2009, but all the way through from the moment the case was initiated to finalization would take you seven months. The oldest, the case that took the longest to finalize in 2009 took 12 months. We're averaging 22 months at the moment, and the oldest outstanding case is now 47 months old. So the situation has deteriorated enormously, yeah. and all of this is happening on a much smaller number of investigations. You say in, in the report that I've read that, that the that um, the really difficult part of the work sits with the International Trade Administration Commission, ITAC, which is affiliated yes. to or controlled ultimately by Ibrahim Patel in the Department of Trade and Student Competition. Um, but you say that they almost never run much over six months from initiation to recommendation on an issue. Yes. You say that once the matter leaves ITAC, however, everything becomes opaque. And this is usually where the delay happens. So where where does it go dark? Where do things go? Where are they going dark? And what, what are your suspicions? So they they appear to go... Well, we have to say that there are two ministers involved after it leaves ITAC. So it goes to trade and industry. Um, Minister Patel applies his mind. And when he decides what to do, he asks the Minister of Finance to, to implement his decision. The Minister of Finance went to court in 2016 to absolutely confirm that he was the final decision maker and, and the court agreed with him. So, so this doesn't help the current situation one little bit because now we have two ministers who have to make a decision and neither minister publishes any record of their decision. So it's impossible for us to tell, other than going to court, whether delays sit with the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Trade. But somewhere I between might be those totally, I might be being unfair to, to Ibrahim Patel. But, but in your experience, 
because I'm sure that you do try to track these things on behalf of clients of yours. Um, how how bad are the delays at Treasury? What is what's Treasury's behaviour? I mean, why did the minister feel it necessary to go to court to defend his right to decide? Yeah, that's a that's a question you'd have to pose to Malusi Gagaba, who was who was minister at the time. I I, I simply don't know. All, all I can read um, was what was published in the court judgments in in both cases. And in both cases, the, the the thrust of the argument was this is a tax. the The minister of finance is is the minister responsible for all taxes, and um, therefore he makes the final call. And, and the nub of the argument in both cases was, um, I will decide when and if to impose a duty. Now, in fact, what's interesting is, and I forget which which one of the cases this is, but. Minister Rob Davies actually gave an undertaking that on his side of things, he would, he would get things signed off within a week. So he said, leave it with me for a week and I'll get it done. Um, and we, have, we certainly have evidence of delays that have occurred at Treasury. But when I look at the court records that we've had access to, I would say the bulk of those delays are typically at DTI, DTIC. And 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 Donald, just give us help, help us with a few examples here. There's um there's a case of a company. I think it's an, a meat producer in the Eastern Cape, Matador. I think it's called. Um, yes. Which applied for a rebate, right? It wanted money back on duty that it had paid for for product that it had imported, um, and the decision took so long that the company had basically had to shut down. Well, they, they haven't quite shut down, but, but, they're, but they're rapidly... Tell, tell, us a bit about, so tell us a bit about Matador. <laughs> so this is just a, this is a, an absolute horror story. So Matador is a butchery in Somerset East, which uh, for those people who haven't been to the Eastern Cape for a while, is a tiny little town in the Eastern Cape. And Matador worked out a recipe to manufacture chicken kebabs, which were made with deboned leg quarters. And these were selling really well. So these were being sold into retailers like, like Spa and these kind of places. And it was doing really well. It got up to 90 employees in 2010. But then what happened is there was that would have made it the biggest employer in Summer City East, I would have thought, 1990. So apparently it was it was a little smaller than the municipality and the hospital. <laughs> but yeah. but in Somerset East, uh, and I mean, Peter, this is kind of your neck of the woods more than mine, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, third largest employer it, it, having a social, positive social yeah. impact. And then what happened is there was a duty review and the duties were increased on on these deboned chicken leg quarters from 12% to 42%. So it absolutely enormous increase. And they they approached ITAC and said, look, we, we'd like duty relief. So a rebate in customs terms means something a little different. And this means you're you're given relief of the duty under certain conditions. Yeah. And essentially here would be for as long as a, a local company couldn't supply them. And so they 
they don't only make their application like most companies do. They they contact seventy domestic chicken producers and say, "Are you prepared to supply us?" And and all of them say no, or they say, "Look, you need to take really large orders, or we want you to buy the whole chicken, and you know you can sell off the other bits." Uh, none of which works for them, and. So the, the net result has been very simple. Their, their business has now shrunk to 25 employees from and from 90 and, and 90 people working full time to 25 employees two to three days a week. So um, a devastating impact. And, and if the situation continues, they will simply, I presume, shut down the manufacturing plant and just go back to the shop where you can you can go in and buy your meat. And Donald, just just so just to go back now and explain what is what has happened. What what who who has delayed the decision? Because all they want is a decision, I presume. Yes. So I mean, at this point, they're they're in this invidious position of not knowing what to do. Because if they get the duty relief, they believe they can get their business back on its feet. Um, I don't know if they'll get back to ninety employees, but they, you know, they'll certainly be able to get their production up. Um, but not knowing is is a particular problem. So their case is, is I guess, about um, a year, a little bit longer overdue at the moment. And it's, um, I mean, it's just a horrible, it's a horrible situation. So they can't make decisions. And and the decisions might be terrible decisions, but they yeah. but they have to be made. And at the moment, they're just kind of slowly slowly bleeding out. And talk to me about it. it, it might, sorry, Peter, just to cut you off, I apologise, but it might be worth noting that the the, the, the domestic industry could um, relatively easy solve the problem by simply supplying them. So it's not as if the domestic industry is beating down the door. And they're saying, look, your prices are too high. We, we have no domestic producer that is interested in selling to them. How does that? How does how does all this help the policy of everyone's excited about? about we call it localization. How does it? How does localization help or not help by these delays? Are you able to measure that? Yeah. So we are actually so. If you think about trade policy as the implementation norm of our industrial policy, and if you for a moment imagine that that all we want to do is give protection to domestic manufacturers, we want to take a factory like Matador and we want to make them as competitive as possible so we don't want to burden them with these extra duties, the, the, the process should be fairly straightforward and we should... We should simply take the decision and grant them the duty relief. The irony here, with Matador particularly, is they haven't even reached the stage of a reciprocal agreement yet. So whatever ITAC's recommendation was has left ITAC, this we know. They, they have not yet even been approached by DTIC to sign an agreement. So one must presume they could they could still be a year or two away from implementation if they're still around. 
Can I ask something, Donald, because you have experience of this. If, say, Matador, uh, presumably is in Somerset East, a small town in the Eastern Cape, one horse, one road, sort of, you know, through the place. And I'm and I'm trying to align it line it up with what we know about Brian Patel's politics and his outlook on the world and his ideology. If they are not part of some central bargaining council, if the wages they're paying aren't decided at a level where Brian Patel would recognise, you know, as a trade unionist, that this is okay, he may not even regard those jobs as real. Um, do we know anything about? Um, Matador's status as a as an employer. Now that's a good question, um, to which I don't have an immediate answer, Peter. I I, I don't know what their status is. Um, I'd I'd like to think that the minister wouldn't view these jobs as unimportant because they're not part of a recognised union. Um. But but I guess that is a possibility. But I'm gonna yeah. to choose. He's certainly he's certainly done. He certainly ignored. He's ignored many pleas from you know employers, bodies in the in in the metalworking industry and fabrication industry you know, in favour of the big agreements made with um, ArcelorMittal and the bigger steel producers. There's another company that you highlight. Another story to tell about a company called Nature's Garden. Um, which wanted a duty increase on frozen mixed vegetables. Tell us that story. Yeah, so I deliberately included that because we should understand that that this is an equal opportunity bad implementation of policy. It's um, it's it, it's not only to to harm, for example, the importers. I mean, it's it's across mm. the board. So Nathan's Garden. Nature's Garden brought an what do they what do they do what who are they what do they do oh yes yeah. so they they manufacture frozen chips probably most famously but they also make things like frozen vegetables and they're an important player in the economy so they yeah we're not involved with this case so what I'm telling you is kind of out of the public record so Nature's Garden decide that they have a they have a problem with um, with imports, and they're struggling to compete with them. And at the time, their their case was brought, which was in 2018. You can you can understand why they have that view. So they're kind of the, the import volumes are are rising fairly dramatically from 2015, and they ask for this protection. Now we don't know what the what the outcome has been of all of this. But what we do know is the data that they provided to ITAC uh, went all the way back to 2015. If you think about a decision that, that is so far removed from the information that was provided by the applicant, um, it's very difficult to see how any decision, whether to grant them the increase or, or not to grant it, can any longer be rational. And so in the time since the data was provided, we've we've had nine ESCOM CEOs. Yeah. Brexit. Ten, ten in fact. <laughs> and I apologize. Yeah. Uh, President Ramaphosa uh, came in in February 2018 with his new door. We've had yep. the march on the Capitol in the US. We've had Brexit. a pandemic lockdown, the lifting. 
Brexit, Russia invaded Ukraine. We've had five UK prime ministers, which I have to tell you is even more amusing to me than the 10 ESCOM yeah. Yeah. CEOs. So, and, and still, that, still no decision. But we still don't have a decision. And we're close to four years now. And, and even longer, of course, if you if you go back to when the data was provided. Yeah. And so nature's got it. I, I mean, it's just parenthetically, but the, the CFO has started and left and left nature's yeah. got it and now lived in Malawi, according to LinkedIn. And we still don't have a decision. But the problem with such a long outstanding decision is they do have duty protection. And let's assume with food inflation as it is, someone wanted to apply to lower those duties, uh, you'd be unable to do that because this open investigation, um, the law doesn't allow you to bring another case. And so it's not only locked up nature's garden, which I think at this point is probably forgotten about this application, but it's also um, locked out anyone else from doing anything on this particular product. Well, you, I mean, you've been you're you're a, you specialize in trade. You're the leading independent expert on trade in South Africa. Where should trade be situated in government? I mean, is it worthy of its own department? Should it be um, attached, perhaps, to foreign affairs or or to the treasury, as it seems to partly be now? Is is or, or is in you know is industry the right place for it? Um, is there a discussion to be had about where to put it? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm quite averse to putting it in treasury because the, the the temptation can be quite great when you're short of money to just increase import duties, and so I don't think it should be in treasury. And countries which have it located, you know, directly in the ministry, um, tend to have very high border duties, and that typically has a negative effect on economic growth. So I think that would be a that would be a bad call. I I don't think it's badly situated. If I'm honest, the problem is this. You know, when I started doing this work 25 years ago, this was a particularly unexciting area to work in, and it was it, it was a very technical area. Kind of guys did calculations, they did all sorts of interesting investigations, and it wasn't particularly political. I mean, the fact that you know this is the second podcast together with you is an astonishing fact. What's happened though is we've we've shifted this from being a technical area to a political one. And so the effect of all of this is that the the incredible importance of a body like ITAC, which is a which is an incredibly technical body with lots of very good experts, is diminished. Because if you think about what happens now, the the most important part of any investigation is what you can agree on with um, with the minister. So one must assume here, if the minister decides that a weak case is is worthy because what you're prepared to concede is, is particularly attractive, then there's no reason for the, the very technical work to happen. And most of the time of these cases is not spent with the technical people. So if that's occurring, then ITAC's role in all of this is diminished, and I think that's um, that's of great concern. I think if we go back to a role which is more technical, we would we would be very well served. And you know, I'd look here, 
at the early period of Rob Davies or when Alec Irwin was in charge. Yeah. Um, very little politicization. How do you rate how do you rate ITAC as, as a as a good professional organization inside government? Yeah, I do actually. I'm <laughs> the folk at ITAC might be surprised to hear me say, but I'm a I'm a huge fan of ITAC. And in fact, I go so far as to say I, I think their mandate should be significantly expanded to deal with things like designation, which is the preferential procurement uh, process that, that, that DTIC manages. Yeah. I think when, when ITAC is allowed to get on with their job, um, I think they're very good. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. We, we need bodies like ITAC and the Competition Commission to do their job well. So let's come back and just discuss a little bit about uh, Abraham Patel's um, fortunes and misfortunes at uh, as as trade minister. I mean, you've been a critic of of some of the trade policies. You've been a critic of many of the duties, and you've taken some of them to court. Um, is there evidence that you can point to that they on that these you know things like localization and the master plans for this industry that industry are are not working? Yeah. So the way I, I, I'd say there are two things to think about, Peter, which is um, the structure that all of this works on, or the infrastructure of trade policy has, has got to work well. So this is all about the process, has, has nothing to do with whoever the politician is at the time. So if the DA were to win the elections next year and put their own trade minister in, we should not be subject to a complete change in how these investigations work. You should be able to plug whatever policy you like, but the process should be absolutely sacred. The problem we have at the moment, and I, I don't want to personalize this to Minister Patel, but, but the fact is our process has become unpredictable, and what we're seeing is a very significant opting out of the process. So you can, you can do whatever you want with localization, but if companies refuse to participate in the trade policy instruments, such as duty changes, and they say, we're just not going to do it because we don't trust the process, then the ability to implement any kind of localization policy is, is lost. It's, it is simply impossible for government, looking at 7,500 tariff codes, to work out what needs to happen on each of those. They absolutely depend on industry. And what we're seeing is a complete collapse in the use of these instruments and I don't think that has to do with the specific policies. I think that has everything to do with the fact that if, you, if your nature's garden and you're in 2018 and you're told, um, embark on this process, spend quite a lot of money, a lot of professional time in your own business to work on this, and we're going to take four years in counting to make a decision. I don't know that nature's garden would have embarked on the process in the first place. And certainly... Nature's Garden may choose to never use such a process ever again, and that I if, think. If, sorry, but Donald, if it didn't, if it if it if it needed protection, and it didn't use this process, what else could it do? Yes, but but here's the thing: it it needed the protection. They argue they needed it. They they've made this big investment in East London, another 
area in the Eastern Cape that can do with development. Um, what will happen over time is that investment won't happen. So the, yeah. the opting out is not just the opting out of the, the, in this case, the duty increase. What will happen is the 120 million rand, um, my apologies, it'd be, that's not nature's garden. I'm confusing that with another case. Yeah. But nature's garden, let me, in fact, take this to the case that I am referring to. So DeFi make 120 million rand investment in East London and they apply for a duty increase and it took 52 months for that investigation to be completed. Um, in that time, you know, hundreds of millions of rands of imports have come in. Now, maybe that's been okay for them or maybe it hasn't. The, the concern I have is that define next time when they're considering the investment, say, well, maybe we're not going to make the investment. In other words, the duty change, whether for an increase or a reduction on your raw material, is not uncommonly attached to an investment decision. So when I talk about opting out, I'm talking about the whole value chain from investment to trade policy. And we will see less investment because you you have no access to the instruments you should have access to. Yeah. I mean, some of the lists that you publish are quite extraordinary, and I'm just reading them as you were talking. Um, one of the ones that stands out, of course, is Bell Equipment, um, a manufacturer, local manufacturer of heavy earth-moving uh, equipment, which has decided to uh, stop manufacturing a lot of its products, uh, big products in South Africa, um, which applied um, in January 21 for... Um, uh, duty increase of uh, 10%. Um, that's been open for 23 months. Now you say in the duty not collected, they were looking for 10%. Duty not collected would be 631 million rand, which is quite a lot of money. Fenestra shower doors. Uh, once the duty increase on shower enclosures, including doors and panels, 15% here and, and duty not collected had they had a quick decision, is 34 million rand. So these are big sums of money. Mondi, Mondi's looking for uh, other paper and paperboard duties, uh, duty uh, duty not collected as sought, 63 million rand. It is it is extraordinary that these things should drift around like this, so sort of untouched. You know, what is, what is business supposed to do? Are they being punished for something? Or simply, you know, is this is this getting lost in the political fog? Well, I think any individual company, Peter, finds itself in the very awkward position of if they push too hard, they worry that what they've applied for will receive an automatic rejection. Right. And this has become particularly problematic because because the 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 decisions and the investigations are less um, technical and and predominantly political. The, the, the challenge now is that instead of a, you, you have a commission, of course, and, and the commission is very good at their job, but given that, that their decision can be overruled if it's politically expedient, um, we find ourselves in a position where no individual company wants to stick their head up and and say anything. So maybe nature's garden um, does take issue with the fact, and I, I don't know if they do, but with this yeah. case being 47 months overdue, 
and maybe they just they worry that if they say anything, the they won't get the duty or they will be denied yeah. um, the anti-dumping duties that they're currently requesting on frozen chips. So there's a there's a there's an inordinate and worrying amount of power that yeah. centralized yeah. in one person. Yeah. And and if on the other end of that, the rebate applications or or, or uh, you know duties paid, people looking for the repayment of those duties. Um, one of the products that interests me that I see pops up on your list is titanium dioxide. Um, yes. Kansai uh, Plascon Paints uh, put in an application for rebate in February 2020, 34 months ago, or 10%. That's duty not collected or not re- not re- rebated. No, no, so that would be, Peter, that would be, those are duties paid. The, the, a rebate right. is just an additional reason to not pay the duty in the future. So it's not a refund. Okay. Um, think of it just the same as a duty reduction, only it's conditional. Right. Okay. So that's 132 million. But we don't make titanium dioxide, as far as I know, in South Africa. How can you not import no. it? Yes, you have to. And it's, I mean, this is a particular, particularly egregious situation because the original application was in fact not just on titanium dioxide for for the paint industry. Um, titanium dioxide is used in all sorts of things, like white master batch, which you use to make white plastics. Um, it's used in toothpaste, all sorts of things. And so the original application was just, you know, take it all away for any industry. What happened though is when the reciprocal agreements were put out, some companies said we're not prepared to sign that. And so there's sectors that they would use Hello? titanium dioxide in. Uh, can you hear me, Peter? Hello? Yes. Ah, sorry, yes, I can hear you. Other sectors. Okay. The other sectors besides payoff yeah. uh, that use titanium dioxide, some of those companies were not prepared to sign the reciprocal agreements. And so they won't get the duty benefit. In other words, they will continue paying the the duty on the titanium dioxide, even though they can't buy it locally because they wouldn't they wouldn't sign off. And they wouldn't sign off. Why? I don't understand. Yeah. So that, that I I can't unfortunately disclose all of the detail, Peter. But but for some of the boards of directors, they you know some of these companies are not local. Um, some of the companies are just not comfortable, or they don't believe the 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 kind of commitment. I mean, bear in mind these commitments typically run for three years. If you look at how chaotic the market is, one of the conditions is typically a constraint on how much you can move your your prices up by. And you're used in every yeah. Hang on, Donald. So hang on a second. So. If I wanted to import titanium dioxide to make white paint or white gutter piping or whatever it might be, I would have to do a deal with the Department of Trade and Industry. Is that right? If you wanted the duty relief, otherwise you just yeah. have to pay. Yeah. So I've got to do, basically I've got to do a deal. I know you don't want to talk about Brian Patel, but I mean, that's the whole point of this stuff, surely, is that it's his, it's his DTI that's basically forcing companies is it not, into um, into propositions where it becomes not worth their while to try and look after their businesses. Yeah, I think 
let me kind of be clear on my own personal position, which which is not necessarily correct, but but you know, coming from my own view, I I think the cost of implementing reciprocal agreements is is almost completely lost in in the process of getting it done, and enough people will opt out that I think more harm than than good will come of the the idea, yeah. particularly with how long it takes. And I think the model we're trying to go after is the kind of East Asian model, you know, think of South Korea, um, for example, but but we're not implementing it in the way that they did. So their model was was heavily focused on the technical aspects of a case so that you, it, it was not simply a negotiation between two people, kind of like a wage negotiation yeah. between the union and the HR director. It's, um, but that's that's the way I I think these reciprocal agreements in South Africa have ended up, and so I don't, I think even with the best intentions, and I think the best intentions are there. My personal view is the economics of these agreements um, will will yield a net negative. Maybe one or two will work, but on balance, I think we're much worse off. Well, Donald, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating, just driving or diving a little deeper into how, how, um, how our economy works. And, it's, you know, you, these people are often your clients and they live such fantastically complicated lives compared to, um, you know, salaried wallers like myself. Um, and thank goodness for experts like you living out there and, um, and available to explain things to us. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much for listening and I'll be back with you again same time next week with podcast from the edge bye bye